This is Chapel Bell Curve. I'm Nathan, and today I'm joined by a special guest. This is a special episode. You will be getting your Missouri preview episode later on in the week. But today we are joined by our very special guest that we're so happy to have, Dr. Carrie A. Tipton. She teaches musicology at Vanderbilt University and is a UGA graduate. Uh, according to her website, her writing has appeared in ESPN's The Undefeated, which is super cool, History Today, Pop Matters, Deep South Magazine, the Southern Foodways Alliance blog, which I, I want to just talk about that, W.W. Norton's Avid Listener, Religion Dispatches, The New Encyclopedia of the South, Black Music Research Journal, and the Journal of the Society for American Music. Today, we're going to talk about her newly published book, From Dixie to Rocky Top, where she talks about the history of SEC fight songs. Uh, hello, Dr. Tipton. It is great to have you here today. Hey, Nathan, it is great to be here. Um, thank you for having me. Go dogs, and please call me Carrie. All right, Carrie. My institutionalized deference from a lifetime growing no. up in the Protestant church is rearing its <laughs> ugly head here. I just want to use people's titles at all time. I'm just like a, I'm just, I was bred to be a bootlicker. You got a hierarchy fetish? I mean, I, I don't want to, but I guess. <laughs> it's hard to get away from when you're raised a certain way. <laughs> It definitely is. And I'm actually interested in that. And I think that that's a pretty good place for us to start. You know, uh, reading, I did read this book. I bought it on Amazon. I know boo boo hiss, but I didn't have time to get it delivered. I had to read it digitally. But I, I was curious about, it seems like in the introduction of the book, you talk about sort of how you didn't really have a personal grounding in the history of Southern college football, despite growing up in the South, until you were, I believe, in your doctoral program at Georgia, right? Well, I, I grew up around SEC football culture. Yeah, I would. I did. I mean, I didn't have a close connection to it. And I, I certainly wasn't related to any coaches or players, but definitely grew up around the culture. Is your background in performance at all? Like, did you play? It is. I play the piano. And um, before I did my doctorate in musicology, I did a master's in piano performance. And that's actually where I stumbled into the discipline of musicology. Can you just like briefly give us like a five second introduction to like, what is musicology? Cause that's a pretty technical term. Yeah, so it sounds like a made up word. Um, I hate using it. A lot of people who are musicologists call themselves music historians because in some ways that kind of makes more sense to regular people. Uh, you could roughly think of me as analogous to a music historian. Um, I use some of the methodology that you would associate with a historian. So looking at archival resources, for example. And there, musicology is a complicated field with different branches and sub-branches, and the word means something a little bit different in the U.S. Than it, than it means in Europe. So people could think of me roughly as a music historian. That's probably a fair, fair term. I think this book is really worth your time if you are interested at all in music. It is a very academic book. There's lots of footnotes, and all the citations are where they should be. But it is not your typical academic book that is hard to read. And it's a pretty brisk read, I found, getting into it. And I, I'm interested in I, I pulled some quotes here just from the things that I thought that were interesting, and I wanted to ask you a couple of questions about. You sort of trace the evolution of fight songs in the SEC as a lens to like sort of the evolution of, you know, through the lens of like the evolution of popular music in general. You have this quote where you say that fight songs derive their power from stasis, simplicity, and a sense of always been thereness. And I'm curious what you think contributes to that level of agelessness, like both in terms of their the technical composition of fight songs, but also in terms of their cultural impact. Because they do kind of feel like they, every time you listen to one, we were talking before we started recording that 
fight songs kind of feel like they sort of spontaneously generated out of thin air. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if you have any insights as to how, like what gives them that quality? Yeah. I think one answer to that question is that for most people alive today who are into football culture and what I'm about to say would be true nationally, not just regionally, um, our primary um, stylistic exposure to fight songs has been through marching bands. And when you hear uh, fight songs performed by marching bands your entire life, <clears throat> I think there is kind of a sense of timelessness and agelessness that's just projected by the marching, like the marching band arrangements. They just sort of, they tend to stay pretty fixed in individual school cultures. And so for most of us, um, anybody really following football culture after World War II, that, that's probably been your primary means of exposure to fight songs as a marching band. So I, I really think that's a huge contributor that sense of I like your word agelessness that's good I might have to use that and I'll cite you great it, it'll be the first time that I've been cited <laughs> anything with any real academic merit so I appreciate that yeah. I was wondering too it seems like that and and I you don't touch on this directly but I'm interested in as like a current college football fan the the history of fight songs in the SEC is remarkably and I think inextricably interlinked with like copyright law and mm-hmm. capitalism and kind of consumerism. Mm-hmm. Would you mind like giving us a brief rundown of sort of how that has been the case? Yeah. So one of the big things that I tried to do in this book was to address this sense that people have that you have alluded to that fight songs just sort of organically spring out of like the hazy mist of tradition. Um, And one of the things I tried to do in the book was to show that they actually were a really vibrant form of commercial popular music in the United States uh, from the early 20th century, probably till about World War II. And I would say the peak of their popularity as a kind of a mainstream sector of commercial music would have been in the 1920s and 30s, so in the interwar period. And that was a surprise to me. I, that's that's not something that I expected to find, and no other scholar had really talked about the history of college songs in general, and fight songs are a subset of that. Uh, um, really much at all, much less as a vibrant um, commercial subgenre or category that used to be, you know, pretty ubiquitous in uh, in U.S. popular culture, mainstream commercial music, and yeah, um, that you know, when you frame it that way. Then that led to my treating a lot of these songs as copyrighted commodities, which is how publishers treated them. It's how radio stations treated them. It's how performing artists and recording artists treated them, that these were commodities that were bought and sold for money in the in the commercial music industry, really, again, with the peak of that being in the interwar period. And that was a really fascinating aspect of the project to me. And I would say, again, that is historical information that's not exclusive to Southern college fight songs. Now, in some ways, that was kind of the challenge of writing the book is like, I'm, I'm doing this regional history of this repertoire, but also having to situate it in a broader in the broader national currents. That's an interesting, I, I don't, I'm not to mansplain, I, I'm not sure how up on like, the modern intricacies of college marching band you are. But there's an interesting parallel in that to modern day marching band arrangements, which is that many times the fight songs that you hear on like recorded products like in commercials or uh, even in stadiums or in video games are actually not played by the original marching band. Mm -hmm. And they're sometimes not even played by anybody at the actual school because it's really hard to accurately record marching bands, which are primarily outside 
uh, outside sort of right groups. Um, and so to be clear, like oftentimes in, in the, their heyday as popular music, fight songs were performed not in by people in no way associated with the the actual university that they were associated with, right? These were just like regular just, musicians who would just record like the fight songs from 10, 15 different schools. Yeah. So um, again, I'm going to go back to those couple of decades between World War One and World War Two, when this as a form of commercial music activity was probably at its peak. And you would get big name. I mean, they were big names then, but many audiences wouldn't know them now. You would get big name singing stars like Bing Crosby. That He's probably the that's known nowadays. Bing Crosby, Rudy Valley, Fred Waring. These were big name pop stars who came out of club contexts and they performed a lot of um, either college theme songs um, that were just songs about college life, or they actually would perform um, what we would consider fight songs. At the time, the term would have been more pep songs or football songs. But so, for example, Rudy Valley, who was, I uh, don't know if you're familiar with that name, but he was possibly the name among the 1930s crooner style popular stars. And Bing Crosby is kind of a holdover from that era. Um, and he recorded the Washington and Lee swing and it was a big commercial hit. And he, he didn't go to Washington and Lee, but people were just, you know, this is kind of, um, kind of indexes how fascinated Americans were with the glamor of college life in the 1920s and thirties. And I think this can be something that we no longer consciously think about because that um, it's been out there in our national consciousness for, for so long. But in the 1920s and 30s, you have to remember, lots and lots of people are not going to college. But what they are seeing in U.S. popular culture is these really glamorous, exciting, sexy depictions of white college life. Um, and so popular culture is mediating the college experience to American consumers. Um, it's showing them things like college fashions. What do college students wear? What slang do they use? What music do they listen to? What are their dance crazes? And so you have to understand the commercial popularity of college songs, including what we would now call fight songs, as an outgrowth. Like, um, that was like the tip of an iceberg of the American fascination with, um, I, in the book, I call it the glamour of collegiate life. You mentioned that it was, you know, these were these were white institutions. And this isn't something that you directly touch on in the book, well, at least this aspect of the question, but do you feel like that there is a resonance between the current state of marching band today, which is that you have basically two separate activities between PWI institutions, both at the high school and college level, and with HBCU institutions? Do, is Was there a similar sort of divide? I mean, I assume that because of segregation at the time and just where racial relations were, that there was a similar sort of divide in the music of HBCU, uh, you, you know, of HBCUs and of PWIs as well. You know, to be honest, I don't really feel that I can speak to that adequately. I know very little about the historical development of HBCU marching bands. What I do know is that a lot of the innovations that we associate with HBCU bands came out of FAMU, uh, Florida A&M University, with Dr. William Foster, um, who begins working at there, I think, around World War II or right before or right after World War II. And from my understanding is that Dr. Foster was one of the first either, I believe either in the HBCU or the PWI band world to bring in the idea of arranging current contemporary popular music, which at the time that would have been things like early R&B and certain types of jazz that you would have heard on the radio. And, you know, and my understanding is that 
when Foster started doing that at FAMU, you know, around World War II, I, I don't think that PWIs really were arranging current contemporary popular music really until maybe the late 60s and 70s is my understanding. That's really the extent to which I feel like I can address. It's a really good question. I'm just not very well equipped to address it. No, I mean, that's that's more than I knew. I, I did know that FAMU, I think, is generally considered to be the, the birthplace of like what we would call the stands tune of like the, okay. like you said, pop arrangement of a traditional yeah. song, but I, I can't speak to it any more than that. And this is something you do touch on in your book directly. The history of SEC football writ large, and I think of music in the South and the South in general, is inextricably inextricably linked to, you know, the wages of the past, right? Like you, yeah, you can't escape sure. segregation and slavery and yeah, talking about this. Sure. And I, I wonder if you could do just a little bit of give us a little bit of history on like the role that Dixie played across this repertoire of uh, fight songs. Yeah. The song Dixie, that is the song Dixie. Yes. The song Dixie. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so let me first give credit to other scholars, historians and music scholars who first uh, documented the widespread use of Dixie across PWIs in the South in their football culture. And that would go beyond just SEC schools. That's why I'm saying PWIs. I was not the first person to, to note that. So, and I document that in the book. Um, so I'm going to, this is going to be a long answer. If that's okay, you can edit me down later. No, please. So, no, go. So what other scholars noticed is that PWIs started using Dixie specifically in their athletic cultures really early on, like in the late 19th century. There's primary source evidence for that. What others, other scholars had not talked about that I talk about in my book is that a lot of people think of Dixie primarily as a Confederate marching tune, and it was certainly that. But before it was that, it was a blackface minstrel song. And what I talk about in my book is that Dixie was not the only blackface minstrel song that PWIs used in their football culture. Proto SEC school. So the SEC was founded in, in 1932. So anytime I say proto SEC, I'm, I mean pre 1932. And so Dixie like the, was the SOCON of the time. Yeah, exactly. It comes out of the old Southern Conference, um, which probably many of your listeners know that. So Dixie was only one of many blackface minstrel songs that were used in SEC or proto SEC football culture. And I, I talked about that in the book. Um, I will say Dixie is the most used uh, by the most institutions that I studied, but its usage was not consistent across historical time in the book. So the book goes from the late 19th to the late 20th century. And what I found is that there are these key historical inflection points where you see a, like a spike in the use of Dixie and other related Confederate symbols, icons, and tropes, whether that's the Confederate battle flag, the rebel yell, old South halftime shows. And what I've found is that the usage of those things in PWI, culture in the South spiked around 1948, which is when um, the Dixiecrat movement emerged from the Democratic Party, and they very visibly used Confederate, neo-Confederate, so around 1948. Um, around 1954 and 1955, as white Southerners pushed back in massive numbers against Brown versus Board of Education, and then again between 1961 and 1965, which was the centennial of the Civil War from secession until... And what I found was that um, 
if you go back to the 1920s and 30s, Dixie was actually not being used very much because the South in some ways was in a different place politically on, on the race issue. The white South was really comfortable with the racial hierarchy in the 20s and 30s. They did not feel that it was under attack from the federal government or from other external cultural forces. And so they, in, in Southern football culture anyway, they were not spending time self-consciously defining themselves as white Southerners in their football pageantry. You get that after World War II, when white Southerners start to feel that the Southern racial order is under external threat. So that was an interesting thing to me. So Dixie used by virtually all the schools in this book at different points in time from the 19th century through the late 20th century, but not consistently. And you can really track it to certain spikes in political activity. I thought that was really interesting. So another thing that my book does that is different that other scholars have not looked at, everybody knows at this point that PWIs were singing and playing Dixie at football games. That's not news. But what nobody else had done was track the disappearance of Dixie from the SEC um, fight song canon. If, and that's something that I do late in my book, and I'm happy with how I did that. I did that with a couple of case studies, especially one based on archival documents at the University of Georgia. And I'll, you know, I'll leave readers to get into that. But that's that's sort of my bookend to this, this story of Dixie that starts in the late 19th century in, in football culture. The song itself dates from like, I think, 1840s. It's interesting to hear that. It was It was interesting to read that from your side, because I have always heard Sort of in the uh, what what would I say the internal folklore of the Redcoats uh, is very conscious of when we dropped Dixie from the oh, name because we were the Dixie Redcoat marching band. Yeah, and then they dropped Dixie in the '60s because Roger Dance, who was the uh, the band director at the time, he was from I, the North somewhere. I think Minnesota, maybe. Kind of focusing more on Georgia. Can you give us a brief rundown? You know, it, it's a pretty well-known fact, and it's something that, in fact, like rival bands will sometimes say to us that, of course, Glory is based on Battle Hymn, and Battle mm -hmm. Hymn was originally an abolitionist song, and it was based mm -hmm. on John Brown's body, etc. Mm -hmm. Can you give us some insight into the history of how Glory became the fight song at Georgia? Yeah, that's a great question, and I actually do not have an amazing answer to that. I was not able to find a clear causal um, chain of events whereby you could say it, it I do know that it became established pretty early on um, so among proto SEC schools many of them don't start to find their kind of unique or distinctive fight songs till the, tw the 20s and the 30s but um, UGA was using glory glory in the late 19th century and other schools recognized that too like it, it they were using it enough at athletic events, including baseball, not just football, but other schools were associating the song with them. But I will also say that Glory, Glory is not unique to UGA. Um, Auburn used it. I don't, I don't know that they do anymore, but really through the they 1950s. They do actually. Do they still use it? It was a big, big early fight song in Auburn too. So it's, it's kind of interesting that um, it was not unique to UGA. It is interesting to find these, you know, white unreconstructed schools at this time using, you know, what people would associate with a tune they would associate with federal or union troops. And then earlier than that, the abolitionist movement. I think some of that, you know, this is just my speculation. I, I don't have clear archival sources, like I said, to support this. But I think, you know, the University of Georgia, just like some other schools, their institutional history has unfolded in relationship with um, certain northern schools, especially Yale. I mean, I, I think Georgia's early founders came out of Yale. That's why we're the Bulldogs. Um, 
so it's easy to sort of build up this very one-dimensional image in our mind of elite white Southern males, you know, before civil rights, before integration, that they were so invested in white Southern identity that the thought of using a union tune was just, oh, we just can't. And it, I just, it just wasn't like that. Um, white Southern schools um, in the 19th century, when football hit down here later than it did, you know, comes out of the Ivy League, they were very interested in what Ivy League schools were wearing, singing, who their mascots were at games, um, what were their colors. And that's, I think the University of Mississippi takes it, its colors from a couple of Ivy League schools. That's where it came from. And that there is, you know, source information for that. So, you know, you can only push the, um, this, the white Southern investment in regional and sectional identity and symbols. You can only push it so far. I mean, you have to go where the sources take you. And so for whatever reason, you know, UGA students were perfectly happy and willing to identify early on with this tune. And I will, let me, and I will say too, um, it was well known among white Southerners what this tune was. The United Daughters of the Confederacy were very upset by any usage of um, the Battle Hymn of the Republic tune. Very upset. I mean, the United Daughters of the Confederacy tried to get this tune removed from denominational hymnals in the early 20th century. So white Southerners knew exactly what it was. And, you know, I, other than just keeping in mind that historical dialogue, that institutional dialogue between UGA and Yale and other Ivy League schools, I think beyond that, you really would be reaching to try to come up with a really clear reason for why it took root in institutional usage. I am also, okay, so here's another thing I'm interested in. And this yeah. is, again, and if the answer to this is that you don't know, that's totally okay, because yeah. this is only only kind of like tangentially related. But you yeah. talked about a couple of times in the book about how sort of the edifice of college football was seen as, uh, you said, like a bulwark against encroaching females. And I'm curious if you, I like, I, I don't know if you're aware, but like there was a time when, drum major was traditionally like a female job and it was more of like a performer than a conductor on the field. And now that role has gotten like split off where you have drum majors now that conduct and you have majorettes that do a lot of what like traditional drum majors would do. And I'm bringing this up because I'm just wondering if your research got into any of the like gendered, like any more specifically into like the gender differences and like when these bands became mixed gender versus when they didn't. Yeah, so let me just say quickly before I answer that, that the, the quote you mentioned about football being understood as a bulwark against encroaching females is from a scholar named Gerald Gems. Um, I just want to make clear that that wasn't my phrasing. Dang, getting the sources in there. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. important. No, it's great. I yeah, love it. For sure. I'm going to answer this two ways. At one level, this book does not talk about marching band history as much as you might suppose because this was something that surprised me. For the majority of the period that the book covers, that's not how people engaged with fight songs, musically speaking, right, stylistically yeah. speaking. So there, at some level, there's a lot of marching band history that's not in there. Um, there are a few times when I discuss gender and, and marching band history. Uh, one of the places I think was when I talked about LSU in the 1930s with Huey Long and other politicians that became involved with it because LSU had a cadet band at the time that was um, all male. And that was not uncommon at SEC schools to have all male bands. The most that I really say about this is that World War II is, to me, uh, what seems to have really changed this, at least at, at SEC schools, is that when so many young men enlisted in World War II, campus bands were left pretty decimated. 
And so I know at several institutions, that's when they began to admit women, the marching bands. But that's, that's as much as I know and as really as much as I say about that particular issue. Yeah, it is, it is interesting. I thought your whole, the whole thing about Huey Long and LSU was also really interesting because one, another one of the sort of like internal folklores of the Redcoats is that the birth of the modern Redcoats was not in 1905 because it was generally understood that they were just bad. It was when the Bayou Bengals came to Georgia in like the thirties and like oh. embarrassed the red coats. And we actually didn't have a very good funding or like an official band director before then. So as you referenced, the LSU band has a really sort of, I would say partially sorted past with Huey Long, this sort of almost mythological political figure in Louisiana. Can you give listeners like a, a brief sort of introduction to that relationship? Because it is incredibly intriguing and it's enough of a reason to just like re buy the book and read that chapter at least. Cause it's just cracks me up every time. Yeah. That was the wildest chapter that I wrote by a long shot. And there, there was a lot more that I could have said. So Huey Long was the populist politician um, from Louisiana. He was assassinated in 1935, which cut his career very short. But in, in the few years that he was active on the national stage, he became active in Louisiana politics in the like mid late 1920s. But then he was active on the national stage in the 1930s, partly because he became uh, governor and senator of Louisiana, but he also had a short lived presidential campaign. So he, he became a national figure and the national media followed him closely as did the Louisiana media. Uh, he was a handful just technical historical term, real handful. And he had a very outsized personality. He was, uh, you know, the Southern writer, Robert Penn Warren called, um, and I can't do better than this. He called Huey Long a son of a bitch with a genius for publicity. And um, Robert Penn Warren was on fact on the English faculty at LSU for a while. He was there when um, their, I guess it was the Southern Review first started to be published. I think that was during the Huey Long years. Robert Penn Warren was reflecting backwards on his time at LSU when Huey Long was there. So Huey Long, you know, you kind of go read about him and he, he has spawned books, films, and so forth. One of the ways that Huey Long harnessed media attention was that he basically uh, <clears throat> inserted himself into the administrative and uh, workings of LSU, probably around 1928, 1929. And one of the most visible ties that he built up with LSU was that he became very involved with, it, with its marching band. And that went in multiple directions. Um, administratively, he hired and fired a couple of band directors. Uh, he would work with the band directors or sort of tell them what he wanted done in terms of instrumentation, repertoire, um, band size. He long was responsible for increasing the LSU band um, it just to massive proportions in the 1930s. By the time he would so Huey Long was assassinated in September 1935, and I think in fall 1935, the LSU band was around 200 members. Um, and that, it started out at about 50 members at the beginning of the decade when Huey Long died. So he, he just really massively increased it. He got money from, you know, Lord knows where to take the band on these massive trips where they, they would take, they would charter trains and, and go to different and you have to remember, this is the height of the, this is the depression. And Louisiana is a cotton state that gets hard and hit, hit really hard in the late 1920s and early 30s by the depression. So Huey Long really, really um, you know, I think he had an, just a, a very clear sense that if I can drum up publicity for the state's flagship school, 
it will translate into publicity and possibly uh, improved economic benefits for the state of Louisiana. Uh, people have asked me before, was this harnessed to his populism? And I don't think it really was. I don't think there's any clear plank of his populist agenda that you can link to his activities at LSU. I think this had to do more with his outsized personality, but also a growing awareness across the territory in the Southeastern Conference that um, a flagship school could bring really good PR to the state, meaning it could boost the state's economic fortunes. And I think Huey, one of the things I say in the book, I try to frame that historically, that Huey Long was just an outsized example of a larger trend that was developing across the newly formed SEC in the 1930s. Yeah, I mean, it just, you could, in fact, I, I will point, listen, I was about to say you could write a whole book just about Huey Long anecdotes at LSU. And someone just did that, um, a journalist at LSU named Robert Mann, just published a book this summer called Kingfish U, as in Kingfish University. And it's he put it out with LSU Press, and it's exclusively about the subject, Huey Long's relationship to LSU. I think that that whole, that whole history really intrigued me because I these concepts, and, and it seems to me historically that that period between the Depression, especially, and then like 1942, like 1939, the involvement of America in World War II is like a very popular consciousness. There's not a lot of awareness of that history. And so what intrigues me about all of that is that it feels like to me that that still affects and resonates with our current experience. Like because of Huey Long's involvement, I think that like LSU has always had a good band. And a lot of times in the past 10 years, since I've been around marching bands in the SEC, LSU has had the best band in the SEC by like a pretty good margin. Hmm. And I think that institutionally, that support, that that's part of the reason why. And it's just, I think the relevance of a book like this is that these are things, even though they feel very distant, that still resonate with us today. I mean, when I was in band, people would ask me to play Dixie on my tuba when I was walking through hmm. Uh, tailgates, you know, yeah. they would ask me why we had taken Dixie off the name, something that happened 50 years before I was right. in band. And if, if it's easy to feel like that, these are sort of like dry historical studies of stuff, but I would emphasize to listeners that I think the worthiness of this book has a lot to do with the fact that, you know, I think the South is always sort of, uh, it's like a series of closed loops that just repeats themselves, the, the history of the South is in some ways. And that this book definitely touches on one of those things. Oh, I was just going to kind of wrap up a thought about LSU's marching band of prowess, which is that I think it, it's a little bit uniquely located um, ever since the campus moved to Baton Rouge. Um, it's right there where all the political action takes place, which has made it, I think, very easy for Louisiana politicians to see it as... Um, as something worth funding and supporting, not just Huey Long, but his successor, Governor Richard Lesh, did this too. And I think others as well. It's just very easy to see the band as a symbol, not just of the school, but of the state. But also the proximity to New Orleans meant that um, jazz culture influenced the LSU band early on. They were playing jazz and ragtime in the early 20th century. I've seen documentation of that. And then um, at least you know, a couple of their directors came out of uh, musical culture of New Orleans and kind of brought that, I think, to Baton Rouge. So that, uh, to me, that's it's a very, really interesting school to study musically for that reason. Well, the other thing that I would like to have you sort of give a little preview of for the book that I think will draw people into this is that I think chap the first chapter of the book, if I'm not mistaken, is the story of how the Rambling Wreck sort of evolved as Georgia Tech's fight song. 
And if you're not, if, if you don't know, Georgia Tech was in the SOCON with everybody else. And then Georgia Tech was one of the two, I think, original SOCON members that left the SEC, the other being Tulane, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, I don't know. Was Sewanee in the Southern Conference because they left too? Yes, they were. Okay, yeah, Sewanee okay, as well. So those are the three, yeah. So in terms of J- Ramble and Wreck, in terms of Georgia Tech's fight song, it seems like it, it's a, f- and I think this is why you start with the book with it, is that it, it is sort of the er example of what you were talking about with the commodification of these songs. Can you give us a brief overview of the long-term legal wrangling that happened around the ownership of this song? Yeah, so I don't, to be honest with you, I don't remember a lot of the details without them in front of me. But the reason, one of the reasons that Ramblin' Wreck became a real toss-up in terms of copyright and authorship and ownership, uh, really throughout the 20th century, um, is that it's a folk tune. It's an old drinking tune that was not newly composed for Georgia Tech. And this, it, it reflects an earlier time in college football culture in the U.S. Um, this is true not just at the South, but nationally, where in the 19th century, when students start to realize, hey, we want, we want songs that are upbeat that we can use for athletic purposes, especially as football is obviously becoming a durable phenomenon, we want football songs. It made sense to just grab tunes that were already out there in the national consciousness. The student body already knows them. Other fans know them, and you just write some new lyrics or riff on the lyrics that have been paired with that tune. And that's what happened with Glory, Glory to Georgia. This is kind of the same phenomenon. But the, you know, the, that's fine. But the problem comes later when you get closer to the world of the marching band and people start to arrange these tunes that are in the public domain and claim authorship and copyright over certain arrangements. And it just can get very murky over who owns what. It's very common for schools not to own the copyright to their fight songs. It, it can be extremely complicated. And uh, so Ramble and Wreck was kind of an, an interesting case study because it's one of the very early fight songs in the you know, proto, old you know, former ex-SEC school and it was interesting to me for that reason. But yeah, the, the ins and outs of the legal wrangling were really complicated. But it kind of shows you that there's a lot at stake with um, claims to copyright and authorship over these songs. Uh, alumni associations especially seem to have taken this all very seriously throughout the 20th century. Because for alumni to say, and I think maybe even more so than current students, because, you know, you're a current student for, what, four or five years, six years, if you take a victory lap, you know? <laughs> come back for grad school, but you're an alumni until the day you die. So that's a long stretch of time. And so alumni build up like strong, strong investments in the pageantry and symbols of their alma maters. To be able to say our school has a unique fight song that no one else has, that's a strong affective or emotional claim that I found that alumni especially wanted to make over and over and over again. And that's a tricky thing to pull off when you use a folk tune or a drinking tune like Ramble and Wreck that just came out of Anglo-American ballad culture, drinking culture, singing culture in, in the 19th century and is really actually not unique to your institution. Thank you so much for being here with us, Carrie. This has been, a, I think, really illuminating conversation. And if this is the kind of nerdy stuff that you're interested in, and let's be honest, if you're listening to this or this podcast in general, it is. I would highly, highly recommend that you go pick this book up. It is just as a refresher called from Dixie to Rocky top. And it is a chronicle of the history of sec fight songs. Thank you so much for being here, Carrie. And, uh, you know, go dogs. Thanks. It was great to be here and go dogs.